Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays. I know that it has been a bit. I think it's been three or four weeks since I've made an episode. And that's just because I've been busy doing life stuff. We traveled quite a bit with another member of our little Polly family, and that was a lot of fun. And I've been working on the house that I live in quite a bit, trying to get that finished up because it's been a long renovation process, and I know that the people that I live with would very much like it to be done myself included. As you can see, I am joined in the studio this week by the lovely Katya. Hi. And this has been something I've been wanting to do for a while, for various reasons I've been putting off. We often get questions addressed to both of us. We often get questions addressed to Katya directly. And I wanted to take some time to do a series of interviews with her um, not only covering the porn work that we do together, but also delving into our BDSM relationship and delving into our poly relationship, because I think that would be instructive and informative to you guys. I think you might enjoy that. This week, we're probably going to focus more on BDSM, how she got into the BDSM world, how she ended up working with me in the BDSM world. Before we do that, I want to do a brief update on our continuing issues with Pornhub. I'm not trying to get into a war with a billion dollar corporation. I think that's something that I would lose. However, I have received a lot of support from our fans and some advice from our fans, questions from our fans, etc. as to why we haven't released anything lately. And the reason is um, Pornhub is still trying to sort out the kinks in its new terms and conditions of service and what is allowed on the site, what is not allowed on the site, etc. They're still reviewing videos, ours included. They're still going through and pulling videos, demonetizing videos, etc. And until that sorts itself out, I'm not willing to put up any new content that would be either immediately pulled down, demonetized, or would then count against us. Because what's frustrating for us is that whenever they do take down one of our videos, they send us a, a warning saying, you know, if you continue to upload videos that don't meet our terms and conditions of service, we will suspend your account. Some of the videos that they're pulling down have been up for years. Some of them have been up for a couple months. Every video that's been pulled down has been featured by them on their front page. So it does definitely send a mixed message to us as to what's allowed. We have received conflicting advice from them as to what's allowed. We have not gotten any clear answers. And so since what we make are, you know, hardcore, sometimes violent, but consensually so videos, and that's specifically what they're targeting, I'm not willing to put anything up until I have a much better idea of what's going on with them. It may mean that we move our rougher content to another platform. That's been suggested to us by our fans. If we could make that viable, I'd be happy to do that. Um, it'd be nice to have a place where we felt safe putting up our videos. We have tried to be very responsible in the kind of videos that we put up. That hasn't seemed to help. The other problem is the backlog we have, the videos that are unreleased, are definitely, you know, more of what we have been making so far. Very reality-based, very real-looking, because we specialize in it being real. And they were not created in a way that was designed to, throughout the video, establish continuing consent, if that makes sense. We didn't have that in mind because that had never been an issue before in our videos. Um, Pornhub has told us that it's not enough just to have a consent disclaimer and an interview with the model at the end. That consent has to be established throughout the length of the video, which is a pretty high bar to reach, but we can, we can make videos with that in mind. Unfortunately, everything we have filmed does not fall under that in any way, shape, or form. It's designed to be very real. So moving forward, I will make videos that I think adhere to that new guideline. Um, as for everything we have in the can, who knows? That may have to go up on our own site or get sold individually. 
I just don't know right now. I'm not willing to put it on Pornhub as is and you know, risk having our entire account suspended because that would be very difficult for us to recover from. All right. Since I have Katja here, and you'll have to forgive the fact that she's rather blurry. That's just how she is. <laughs> I know that's often a question that our fans have is why is Katja's face blurred? Um, it's not actually blurred. She's just blurry. That's part of her um, aesthetic. Uh, the reason that Katja's face is blurred is because she has a professional job in the real world that isn't necessarily compatible with porn. It's not the kind of job where if it was found out, the world would end. But to preserve her privacy, to protect her in real life, and to give her a modicum of privacy and anonymity, we've always blurred her face to more or less degrees. How did you first get started in the BDSM world? Because when we were younger, mm -hmm. the internet really wasn't a thing. It wasn't something where... You could go online and look up BDSM. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I, I did first discover it online, but it wasn't anywhere, you know, near as obvious as, as you would find nowadays. Um, when I was 17, my family got the internet for the first time. And I, uh, I actually had an ankle surgery, and so I had a lot of time at home with nothing to do. <laughs> and I started going on um, internet relay chat, you know, which is kind of a old school. I mean, just it, it would have lots and lots of channels, lots of different chat rooms about all kinds of different topics. And I started out just going on completely innocuous chat rooms. And then I don't even know how, but I just wandered in to a Gorian chat room. <laughs> which, um, for people who aren't familiar with it, which is probably most people who are listening, these this was a chat based on these particular kind of fantasy, sci-fi, almost like romance novels for men, basically. <laughs> um, and so Gore is this fictitious planet um, where all of the men are dominant and all the women are slaves. And and so basically in this chat room, people were role playing. Now, were you a fan of the Gore novels? No, I had never even heard of them. I don't even really know how or why I went into this chat room. So pause there for a second. And in, in the early Wild West days of the Internet, um, chat rooms were a way that I was introduced to it. A girlfriend of mine was going to school at the time and she's like, check out this new thing. It's a chat room and you can talk to people from all over the world. I don't remember how they were really accessed or how they were indexed. I don't remember when you went into a chat room if it was if you had a list of different rooms. Yeah, that's what it was. It was just like a long, 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 long list of channels, and I think I was just looking for somebody to talk to. I, you know, I just I don't even remember what it was called or why it was an interesting name, but I clicked on it. And the people in that chat room were actively role playing. Yeah. And so like basically that, that it wasn't, there was no, like everybody in the chat room was talking in a persona. Yeah. I think I was one of the rare 21 year old women who was actually both a woman and actually younger than 21 instead of, you know, a 60 year old man pretending to be a 21 year old woman on the internet. And um, yeah, no, for me, when I discovered, I discovered first this Gorian chat room and then another just more straight up BDSM chat room. And for me, it felt like I was discovering that something that had always lived inside me lived inside other people too, right? So my earliest BDSM related memories go back to being just right around puberty. And um, my parents had a couple of, like my parents were open enough about sex that books on sex existed in our house, but not open enough that we would have ever had a discussion about like the variety of sexual practices that exist out there. So I had taken a couple of their books that were just openly sitting on the living room shelf and I had snuck them into my room. And one of them was essentially an encyclopedia style book on just all kinds of things having to do with sex. 
And there happened to be an entry on bondage and an entry on spanking among hundreds of other entries, but those were the only two entries I cared about in the whole book. And so I'm like 11 years old. That sounds like the joy of sex. Is it <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it was. And um, yeah, so I'm like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old and already all I care about in this entire book on sex is bondage and spanking. So as you're paging through it, you're seeing a lot of that particular book, and I'll, I'll put a link to it. It has some very realistic depictions of human sexuality. They're drawn in a way that it's not necessarily erotic, but it's it's clearly explicit as to yeah. how sex is but done. It's like an encyclopedia. It's an educational book. When you're paging through this, nothing's really striking your fancy until you reach exactly. spanking and being tied up. Exactly. Do you believe in some deeper psychological need or you feel like this is just something that it's just a kink you have? It's just how you're wired that for some reason this type of power exchange is erotic to you. I guess I don't really understand the distinction. I mean, I think both of those things are true. I think it is a deep psychological need, and I think it's how I'm wired. <laughs> so I guess when I say deep psychological need, I think a lot of people automatically assume, oh, well, you have some sort of childhood trauma mm -hmm. that is expressed through your need to be dominated or to dominate. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, right? I But I definitely don't have any kind of I don't have any kind of history of abuse. I don't have any, the only, you know, and of course I ask myself these questions, right? And the only thing I can think of in my entire life is when I was eight and I had an eye disease and my parents used to have to hold me down on the floor to rub cream in my eyes. <laughs> That's the only thing I've ever been able to think of that could have to do with like restraint because it was of course, this is, of course, a bad thing, a very unpleasant thing, but I don't know if I could I could have somehow turned it around or it's just a coincidence and it has nothing to do with it. I'm personally not a big believer in the whole psychological trauma as a child leads to kink lifestyle BDSM. I think that we don't choose our kinks any more than we choose our sexual orientation or what specifically turns us on. Even if you're a straight hetero guy, you know, why do you like tall blondes as opposed to short, dark-haired girls? Why is that? And I think when you try to overanalyze that and come up with reasons for it dating back to childhood, it's really a fool's errand. And it's not terribly important most of the time. Um, a question that I was asked recently, and I want to put this to you as well, mm -hmm. is someone who is a fan of our stuff. And when I say our stuff, remember that we make a very kind of rough power exchange consensual non-consent meaning you know the we depict people being forced to have sex but they are into being forced to have sex or do specific sex acts and i know that's touchy and, and triggering for some people but for other people it's extremely erotic and what she wrote me was that she found our stuff and and really enjoyed it but felt really guilty for enjoying it because she personally had experienced a sexual assault and she wanted to know what was wrong with her that having experienced a sexual assault, she enjoyed getting off to depictions of consensual assault. And I put that in quotes, you know, we don't, we don't make extremely rough, grab them off the street type, you know, consensual non-consent. We do the kind of, this is going to be difficult for you and you're going to do it and you get off on doing it because it's difficult type of porn. So I had explained to her that, no, there's nothing wrong with her, first of all, that, you know, there's a big difference. And the, the key in all this is consent. If you get a hug from somebody that you want to have a hug from, it's a wonderful thing. But if you're on the bus and somebody you don't know walks up and puts their arms around you in a hug, that's not good. There's nothing comforting about that. That can be assault. That can be something you really don't want. And so the, the difference is, are you consenting to it? So in the type of sex acts that she's watching that we do, it is truly consensual. This is not something that's being forced upon anybody. The force involved is invited. It's something that makes the receiver feel a certain way. And we're going to get into that in a bit. So something that I wanted to talk with you about is that I've had partners that have had past traumatic events in their life mm -hmm. and partners that haven't. And 
I don't tie it necessarily to their need to submit or their need that they enjoy rough sex or that anything like that. It seems to be completely detached from something that's happened to them personally. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a history of sexual assault or anything bad in your childhood or even while you were dating that would be, how am I trying to say this? So knowing how force and consent and sexual assault past childhood, you know, bad traumatic experience, et cetera, are viewed in our culture and you making porn that is geared towards the rougher aspects of sexuality. How do you square that? How do you make that okay with you? Yeah, no, and it's tough, right? It's really tough. That's really, (laughs) so, you know, I think there are two parts of that, right? So the first is, the is there something wrong with me part of it, right? And is something that just has taken some time to just get more comfortable with myself and understand that actually, you know, these fantasies I have, finding the things erotic that I find erotic, it's not that weird. (laughs) I might be a little bit extreme in my tastes, but a lot of women and men have, um, you know, kind of very similar fantasies and I'm just lucky enough and kind of bold enough to to go out and get those satisfied instead of them just living in my head. Um, Yeah, the other part of it is kind of societal impact, right? And I think that is a lot more difficult. And as you know, you know, I was at an event, a charity event this year where and it was sponsored by Wicked Way yeah, Studio. Yeah, actually, because Wicked Ways paid for my ticket to the luncheon. And it was it, the, this woman had survived, abused by more than one person as a child and then as a teenager. And in my mind, this had absolutely no relationship to what we do. I didn't think about those two things at all until at the very, very end and kind of the question and answer section, she actually brought up violent porn. And this was, it was, I think, in the context of changing the culture we live in so that, you know, it's so that people don't think that this kind of behavior is okay, that they know it's bad. And she was saying that one of the things, like one of the things out there we need to eradicate is violent porn, (laughs) right? Because it it kind of perpetuates this idea that... um, that this is okay, it's okay to treat women this way, that women are, I don't know, objects. And one of the first things I did after this lunch is call him and be like, oh my God, it was great, except now I feel so guilty and conflicted. And, and you know, we had a conversation about it. And it's, it's, it wasn't the first time we'd had this conversation about needing to and wanting to you know, make consent clearer, not necessarily in like throughout the course of the video, like apparently Pornhub is asking for, but in terms of, you know, those very clear disclaimers at the beginning and the end that Sir has been adding. Um, So yeah, so we talked about that. And yeah, I mean, I think it's tough, but at the same time, I don't think the answer to making our culture safe for everyone is that we suppress very normal and natural consensual activity or depictions thereof. I think a lot of people would look at what we do as not being normal and natural. Sure. And it can be difficult for people who have a very vanilla look on sex to look at what we do and be like, how can that be good? How can that be healthy? How can that be okay? And you can extrapolate that, you know, it's one thing to look at what we do, which can involve a lot of physical discomfort and force, et cetera. And I can, I can see people having a hard time with that, but people will extrapolate that throughout the BDSM spectrum and say, anytime you are voluntarily submitting yourself to the will of another person, especially a woman submitting themselves to a man, that's a bad thing and you shouldn't do that. And that is such a harmful way of looking at the submissive nature. And I have talked about this in other podcasts. I've talked about how submissive people, especially in the West, it seems, are really stepped on and really um, disparaged for their submissive nature as if everyone should be dominant, which is simply not the case. You know that about yourself and the people around you, that 
dominance and submission is a spectrum. You know, there are some people who are extremely dominant and people who are extremely submissive. And of course, in the middle of the bell curve is everybody. You fall somewhere on that spectrum. You know, it may be easier for you to take direction than it is for you to have all the decisions left to you. And if you're a submissive person, having somebody in charge is not a bad thing. It's not something that is forced upon you. It's something that you tend to seek out. And when you, when you run that, you know, slider up and down the scale of dominance and submission, you tend to get people on the more extreme sides that like what we do, where it's not just a matter of submitting yourself to another person, but them requiring things of you that are very difficult. And by doing that, you have the opportunity to show your submission in a way that is above and beyond what would normally happen in a relationship. And this can get very, you know, there's a huge amount of depth to this. But what I wanted to ask Katya about is for Katya specifically, she sought out the kind of stuff that I did. And in fact, having seen her porn tastes and her porn history, <laughs> the stuff that I do is fairly tame. You know, she has much more extreme tastes in porn than I do. And that's not shaming her in any way. It's just what turns her on is more extreme than what turns me on. You know, I have tastes and I know what I'm looking for. I know what I like and what turns me on. You know, when I watch some of the stuff that Koch enjoys, it's just too much for me. It's too, it's much more focused on degradation and such, which is fine. It's just not my particular kink. Um, it doesn't repel me, but it doesn't turn me on either. So I wanted to loop this back around a bit, going back to her initial entry into BDSM. So she found some chat rooms mm -hmm. where people were discussing power exchange mm -hmm. you know to a fairly extreme level in the gore role play where the women are expected to be completely submissive and the men are completely dominant and it's a very kind of caveman barbarian-esque culture um conan the barbarian is kind of in that wheelhouse where you know super hyper masculine men very submissive women you know grab by the hair, take to cave, make baby kind of thing. Um, I actually do know people that are in that fandom and there's nothing wrong with that. If that's, you'll rarely hear me have anything wrong with anybody's particular kink because I know that every possible shade of the spectrum is out there. And if it's making you feel good, there's nothing wrong with it. But I don't feel like that kind of Conan the Barbarian slave master relationship in porn or in kink and domination was really your entryway to it. How did you go from that initial chat room experience mm -hmm. to delving into the scene to the point where you were titled Miss Leather <laughs> Southeast at some point? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess in relative terms, it was all very quick, although it didn't feel quick at the time. Um, but yeah, so I was still 17 at that point. I was still living at home with my parents. I was in college, but I was I hadn't gone away to college. I was just taking classes locally. I found, like I said, after the Gorian chat room, I found another chat room that was just more straight up. Hi, we are people in the BDSM community, right? And so that was where I started to learn about, you know, places exist where you can go in real life and meet people. And, but again, I was still 17, so I did not go to them. Um, <laughs> I really did wait till I was 18. Um, I also would not have had the opportunity to go anyway um, until after I turned 18 and, and moved away from home um, to go to college. And so that, so basically, yeah, I mean, my first chance, the summer right before I started at, you know, my, my big college, um, I had my first chance. I was in a major city that had a support group um, called PEP, which was, a was actually a national chain at the time. I don't think it exists anymore, but it was People Exchanging Power, PEP. And yeah, so I, I had one little red dress 
and I wore it every week. I was 18 and everybody there was 40 and older. Um, and I, I imagine you were a very popular attraction. <laughs> but everybody was like very respectful. Um, so basically the format of this is that you would go and the first hour or so was a presentation. So somebody would present on some topic of play, right? Rope bondage, spanking, caning, you know, whatever. So, um, so the format is that the first hour would be a presentation on some sort of topic. Bondage, spanking, caning, flogging, um, any, you know, any kind of role play. And so somebody would present on that topic for an hour. And then after that, it was open dungeon time, open play time. And people would move from the kind of, there's, but that, that space where we met with the chairs and the snacks and the good lighting, that was always open. And people were always in there to socialize. And so you never had to go into the dungeon at all if you didn't want to. Or if you did, you know, it, it still didn't matter. Nobody was trying to push you into play. You would just observe what people were doing. And so, so it seems like a fairly large yes. metropolitan area. Yes. Because I've found that the smaller the city you live in, the less resources you have. Sure. I've also noticed quite a shift in the demographic Absolutely. of who's playing from back in the day when I started in the Absolutely. late 90s to now. Yeah. Things are quite a bit different now. Yeah. But so you were in a fairly well-established city with a fairly big scene. Yes. I imagine you could have gone to more than one group. Yes. Yes and no. I mean, that was the only, so the scene was somewhat segregated in terms of gay men versus our group was pansexual. So it tended to be straight, bi, lesbian, all of us were together. And so it's kind of like there were two parallel scenes and some crossover, but not a lot. I think that's still the case. Even now, it seems that when I play publicly, which is not that frequently, like never since there's definitely a, a more hetero based <laughs> Uh, BDSM yeah. scene and a homosexual based BDSM scene. Yeah. It still seems that there's quite a bit of segregation there. Yeah. Which I don't entirely understand. It seems like there'd be more in common among those groups yeah. that we would play together. But yeah. So, um, so no, actually, like really, there were kind of like there were kind of three established, big established places in the city at the time. There was Pep. There was the Eagle, which is another chain that exists in a lot of big cities, which is a gay leather bar. And then um, there was a very nice dungeon facility that breaks my heart that it closed down years and years ago. Because it was like, you know, it's like, I guess for, for normal people, it's like if your, your old high school closed down. That was, <laughs> that's, what, that's what this dungeon closing like was for me. But at first, I just went to Pep. It was like this safe place. You know, and people would always like later once I came out of my shell a little bit and I did actually talk to people, they would tell me that, you know, those first several weeks, because I would come back every single week wearing my same one little red dress that I had that I felt was like sexy. I don't know, whatever I thought when I was 18. And, um, you know, they, they always told me I would sit there like a deer caught in headlights. And that's all I would do. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I would sit there. I would watch and I would keep coming back. And um, eventually people just got me to come out of my shell and I'm kind of forever grateful to those people honestly um these are people who were just decades older than me some of the ones I remember the best were probably close to 60 and um they were just friendly I mean they were just friendly and kind and nobody ever put any pressure on me at all. And um, I'm actually a very gregarious person. It's actually not typical for me to sit in a corner. <laughs> it actually drives him crazy because whenever we're just out shopping or at a restaurant, I'm striking up conversations with people and it's driving him insane. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was just, it was a very good experience. And I, um, I, I really don't remember what my I don't remember my first play experiences I don't remember if I I probably did do a little bit of kind of casual play this would have just been you know light bondage light spanking no sex would have kept my panties on like I, I probably did some of that before I entered my first private BDSM relationship. So it was in a public setting. You would have played yeah. at that type of... Yeah. So like my first experiences with BDSM were really public much more than private. Um, but I did eventually find a partner. I found my first dom that way, um, who was a man who is 
our age now, but at the time, <laughs> but he was quite a bit older than me. And um, he had actually presented on rope bondage. He was very, very good at rope bondage. And I just, I thought he was attractive. I, I liked his demeanor and um, I just had a bit of a crush on him. I left a note on his car because I was too shy to actually and I'm like not shy a person, but in that situation I was. And I so I like left a note on his car that I was interested and that plays into you know kind of what we were talking earlier on. You don't pick what attracts you and people. Growing up, you know, you're an attractive young woman, but the men in your peer group didn't really Yeah, have no. For you I was anymore. never boy crazy. And this is the thing, is like kind of looking back, there are just so so many little ways that I was different, right? So I never went through a boy crazy phase, but what I did do was I had a lot of crushes on teachers and people in power, positions of power over me. And they weren't something that I recognized as the time at the time as being sexual because it, I did not fantasize about having sex with these people, but I just fantasized about having their attention about yeah, just basically having the attention of people with power over me. and But I, I was never really interested in boys. And then, you know, when, I'm, when I got out there into the scene and I had developed this crush, I was like, oh, it's, it's not that I'm gay, which is something I wondered at one point, too, not because I had, you know, strong feelings for women, but just because I didn't go through this stereotypical boy crazy phase. It's that I never liked boys. I like men. <laughs> <laughs> I like grown men <laughs> who are in charge. That's what I like. And that's what I've always liked. Um, so actually, my taste in men has never changed <laughs> from the time I was that age till now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I met my first Dom. We, you know, he was very cautious. I was very young. And um, it, was a, it was a good, healthy relationship. Um, he had a very well-equipped dungeon in his home where he had built all of this very nice furniture, St. Andrew's Cross himself. I know, in a lot of ways, he's actually very similar to my current Dom. Um, and yeah, so I mean, but, but that was basically my introduction. And so, yeah, you, so you talked about being crowned Miss this leather but yeah so so I got very very involved in the scene and um that included I think I was 19 so I mean this all happened within a year I went from you know not being able to talk to anybody to you know being on stage and competing for the title of Miss Southeast Leather and winning it <laughs> we'll have to excise that. Okay. There's somewhere online. There's a <laughs> former Miss Southeast Leather. Yeah. So I I won. And you did well in yes. this leather competition. Yes. I I won my leather competition. I went on and competed at the national level. I was runner up at the national level. So public play has yeah. always been part of your play. It's always mm -hmm. been something that like when I met you, you were still doing a lot of public play. Yes. And. What I found, and I don't want to get too far off of our, our tangent here, but I always have geared towards private play. Almost all the scenes that I do are private, one-on-one, one-on-two, -on -one, very small scale, very closely interactive. And the other side of that spectrum is very public play where you're in a group of people that you know and you like, or perhaps you're amongst a group of people that you don't know. Um, some people have kind of a kink towards that voyeurism, exhibitionism thing. But you've always managed to fall in with a group of like-minded, kinkster-type people. Um, what I've found mm -hmm. when I go to just basic BDSM public events is I don't tend to gel with the people there. Mm -hmm. You've always seemed to find a group of people that are ancillary to the main public group? Yes and no. I, I, th I think that's not, I, I think I've had t two separate experiences and that's true for my most recent experience, but that's not true. When I was 18, no, this was just the general public Everybody's scene. There. But it's just that, like I said, so even though I know what you mean in terms of the, the things that you don't like about the scene and some of the social interactions and dynamics in the scene, I'm sure those were there, but at the same time, 
just understand that I was this very shy person and these people were so kind to me and so welcoming that my first experience was really good. Yeah. Like these were people who really helped me build confidence in myself. Like I never, like a year and a half earlier, I never would have thought I could stand on a stage in fetish wear and compete in like a pageant, you know? So I really, I really came out of my shell. I really developed a lot of confidence in myself as a sexy person, <laughs> like that I had never had before that. And so even though, yeah, so even though I see a lot of what you're saying and I wouldn't necessarily um, fall in with the same group of people now that I did then, I'm forever grateful to them. Sure. I mean, sometimes you get lucky and it really depends on if you had been in a different city, there sure. may not have been that supportive group or the yeah. people in that group may not have been to your liking. I know that, you know, every city has its own feel. Every group has its own feel. And even month to month, year to year, the group dynamics can shift and change and rotate. Sure. Um, something that I've always been curious about. And again, getting into the scene when I got into the scene you know, mid to late nineties, I didn't have the online chat room experience. I was brought into it specifically by somebody in the scene yeah. and it felt very self-selecting. It felt very much like the groups of people that I was playing with were much smaller. Everyone knew each other and no one was going to bring in somebody they didn't think was yeah. a cool person. Yeah. Whereas now it seems like the public play that I go to on occasion is much more mixed where it's online anybody can find out about it anybody can attend and you tend to get a group of people that aren't necessarily friendly with each other or know each other that well um there does seem to be a, a lot of social awkwardness as mm -hmm. in people not necessarily knowing how to interact because the only thing they have in common is a, a shared kink or a shared lifestyle sure um and so, yeah, for me, public play has not been terribly exciting or fun to do. I have had good public experiences. I've certainly gone to some events where I thought, this is amazing. And if it could be like this every week, I would be a foundational member of this community. <laughs> but it seems to me, usually when I go out to public gatherings, I end up standing there watching and thinking, yeah, I don't really want to be part of this. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also nothing wrong with looking around until you've happened to find a group of people you like yeah. because there'll be sets and subsets within that kink community you might fit into or you might not. Um, more to what I was thinking with you is that the most recent group of people that you were hanging out with yeah. seem to be of a very like mind, yeah. very like-minded. Yeah, no, and I was just fortunate because when I, you know, I was out of the scene for quite a few years when I was married. When we met, you were living on the East Coast. Right. And you met me the same way that I interact with a lot of people for the first time, is you wrote me on Pornhub. And I get letters every day, at least once a day, sometimes many times a day. And when we have a featured video, maybe 20 times in a day, people will reach out to me and say, I love your stuff and how do I meet you? I want to be with you and I want to submit to you and I want to be yours forever. And I, I enjoy that kind of fan mail, but I certainly take it all with a grain of salt. And I reply to every piece that I get. The thing is, is that 99% of the time, what that person is looking for is just a recognition. They just want me to respond. They just want me to say, hey, thank you. I appreciate it. They just enjoy that interaction, that fan interaction. And I am completely fine with that. We're still small enough that I can afford the time to respond to every direct message I get. But at the same time, I don't take them that seriously because a hundred people may write me and say, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen and I want to belong to you forever. And I respond to a hundred of those. And out of that hundred, one person writes me back, right? One person makes that next step of continuing the dialogue. So when you first wrote me mm -hmm. and it was very much the same thing, I love your stuff. I want to meet you. This is great. You're fantastic. And I wrote back, thank you. I really appreciate that. Please like and support our stuff. Period. 
And you did write back and you're like, no, no, I'm serious. I would really like to meet you sometime. And when I get that, you know, honestly, what I'm thinking is, I'm sure you and everybody else that wrote me this week would also like to meet me. In fact, I've shown you that on that day that you wrote, several other people had written almost the exact same thing. I gave him a thing. hard time because it took like six months before I actually got him to engage with me. <laughs> it doesn't usually take that long. But yeah, I, I can I can <laughs> see that happening. You were very persistent. Mm -hmm. And I remember that we exchanged several emails back and forth through you know direct messaging. And at some point we shifted over probably to WhatsApp or another messaging service. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that I do is that it, Pornhub is not a very convenient way of talking to somebody. Um, I often don't get messages right away, et cetera. So we'll shift over to another, you know, discreet messaging service. And again, of the hundred people that go to that, one person actually sticks it out. I've been doing this for three or four years now. And there are people in my life that would never have been in my life if it weren't for that Pornhub interaction. Koch is one of them. Mm -hmm. Sadie's one of them. You know, I have other people in my life whom I met through Pornhub. But when you contrast the handful of people that are part of my life now to the number of responses that I've sent out of people that really want to work with me, quote unquote, you know, it, it truly is 100 to 1 at least. So when you reached out to me, mm -hmm. you were still part of a fairly active scene. In yep. fact, you are still friends with the people that you were yeah. seeing with. I've just with. moved away. Exactly. You don't, you don't really mesh with that circle because they are very East Coast based. Right. And you no longer live on the East Coast. Right. Yeah. So I, um, so I fell into this group. I, this was actually my last serious dom before Sir. Um, I had a, a female dom, and um, when I met her, she just already had this very this great group of friends, and so I, I I fell in with them through her. But I was just really really lucky. I was I was actually still married, just kind of coming out of my marriage at that time, and um, and yeah, and it. But it's like you said, you're essentially vetted because of course first she got to know me, and then not only did we develop a relationship, but obviously you know. That's how I got into the group was somebody who's in the group thinks you're cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it was a really, really great group of friends who traveled together. I mean, we did, we travel a lot, whether it's two large events where there are thousands of other kinky people or just our group will have like, you know, half a dozen couples in a house for a weekend, ski at day during the day and play at night, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's been my more recent social experience. And that is, people often ask, how do I get into the BDSM scene? How do I get started in this? How do I find partners? How do I find a dom, for example? And so if you were dropped into any town USA, mm -hmm. how would you go about trying to plug into the scene? I would go on FetLife and I would start a profile or I would already have one if I were already active in the scene. But if I were brand new, I would start a profile and then I would start going to munches. And I know that my sir is not a big fan of munches. <laughs> and I know that you'll have to go to, you know, a dozen or two dozen of them before you start to find people that you mesh with. But I don't know a better way to do it other than FetLife, kind of looking to see who's out there in your area, going, whether it's a munch or going to a public group. I mean, honestly, it wouldn't really differ from how I got into the scene to begin with. I, I started by, by going to PEP and I would do the same thing because the, there are lots of groups out there that do these like educational events. And that's what I would start with. I would start with these educational events. And that's when you, and it, those are no pressure situations. Nobody's expecting you to play at these events. And so, especially if you are kind of shy and new and not sure about it it's just a good way to have no pressure find people who are interested in what you're interested in even if you're not interested them in them as partners they can become your new friends and you can meet their friends and that's what i would do on the sub side yes you know you seem to have been fairly charmed like i know that you have had some dom sub relationships that weren't amazing and we might go into those at some point <laughs> 
but for the most part, you've you've led a fairly charmed life. You know, there's been times where you got into a relationship with a dom, had a good relationship with that dom, and then as relationships do, you drifted apart for whatever reason. And right. that happens. That happens all the time in vanilla relationships. It happens in DS relationships. You know, when you're with somebody for any length of time, there's a very good chance that you will grow apart. You know, some people grow together and become stronger and stronger. And other times, you know, what was initially very strong becomes separated and comes apart for whatever reason. There's nothing wrong with that. But you don't have a lot of Dom horror stories. You have mm-hmm. a couple of things that didn't go well. Getting into the scene, mm-hmm. you tend to be a bit, let's just say that you don't always, you're not as cautious as I would like you to be. <laughs> so... Showing up at munches, showing up at public events, showing up at public gatherings. How do you negotiate that initial exchange between, so you, you meet some guy or some dom or some femdom there and they seem attractive to you and you want to play with them. How do you negotiate those initial scenes? That first time of, hey, I really like you. I'd like to play with you sometime. Well, so it's hard for me to imagine. <laughs> it's been so long. I mean... The, my most recent experiences with that have been people I've actually been friends with first who are in my friend group already, right? And so then it's really easy and really casual. Yeah, and also I've been in, like, since my divorce, basically. I, you know, I was in, I've been in a couple of very serious DS relationships and one not so serious one, but during both of those, I wouldn't, you know, now and then I wouldn't have been free to do that anyway, right? It would have had to go through my dom. So it's a little bit hard to imagine. Are we imagining that I am completely unattached and... If you were to try to start from scratch. Yes. You know, you're in a new city, you don't have any connections, and you are trying to get into the scene. Yeah. You've attended some munches, you've started to click with a group of people. Mm-hmm but you are still looking for that one-on-one dom-sub interaction. Okay. So um, I think it would be like dating anybody. I think it's like vanilla dating, right? I would I would be getting, if this is somebody I'm interested in, it would just be exactly like vanilla dating, where I'm trying to get to know this person, seeing if they're interested in getting to know me. I would go to dinner. You know, it's all of that stuff. And then at some point, you know, if all of those things are clicking then, you know, we could have a talk about these are what my BDSM interests in, what are your BDSM interests? And, hey, I've never done this before and I'm really nervous. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of things that go into that. I mean, I personally would probably be more comfortable having my first scene with somebody be public, Hmm. like in a public play setting. Um, then again, that's kind of how I started. And so my level of comfort with playing in front of people is probably much higher than it is for a lot of people who are new to the scene. Um, but that the presence of other people makes me feel safe. And, um, so that's probably what I would do. Uh, yeah. And that is smart. The kind of intimate interactions that we have in the BDSM community, you know, it's always a step beyond your vanilla relationship when you introduce something like restraints or when you introduce something like power exchange because your vanilla date, your guys are both into it. You go back to his place and you start, you know, playing around and it doesn't feel right. You're not into it. So you stop and, you know, hopefully they can be expected to stop too. In a BDSM situation, when you're restrained and there's already a power exchange thing going on, you know, the level of trust that you're imparting to the person you're with is extremely high. And so I don't recommend that anybody dive into that head first without some sort of fairly extensive prelude warm up period dating situation where, you know, again, I think a public play setting, if you're comfortable playing in public, is a great way to do that. You know, it's nice to have someone there with you, many someones in the case of a public play, to make sure you're okay, to make sure that nothing goes sideways. One thing that I would absolutely recommend to anybody, whether it's vanilla dating or kink dating, but especially kink dating just because of the nature of how we play, 
is a safety call. And a safety call is simply telling somebody that you trust that you will check in with them at a certain time. You know, you go on a date Friday night and you've told your friend that at 10 o'clock you're going to call them and that if they don't hear from you by 10 o'clock, they should call you. And if they call you and there's no answer, there's probably something wrong. So they need to know where you are. They need to know how they can get a hold of you. They need to know things that could help them come to your aid if need be. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm not trying to make people think that this is especially dangerous because it's not. This is a fairly smart thing to do anytime you're dating in the digital age where you're meeting new people that aren't necessarily part of your friend group. Having that safety call can, you know, there's no downside to this. The downside is, you know, you have to pause for a second, call your friend Stephanie and say, hey, I'm doing fine. You know, I'll talk to you tomorrow. The plus side is, is that if you get into a bad situation or the person you're with gets into a bad situation, you know, while you are restrained, for example, help is on the way and people know where you are, which is incredibly important because, you know, again, I would not say that the kink dating scene is any more rife with bad actors than the vanilla dating scene. Unfortunately, the vanilla dating scene is pretty rife with bad actors. So having that initial, you know, getting to know someone period where a trusted friend of yours knows where you are and knows to expect to hear from you at a certain time is just a safety protocol that I recommend for everybody of both sexes, no matter what's going on. Taking the time to get to know them, playing in public if that's comfortable for you, or playing at very low levels to begin with is very smart. Understanding your limitations and having those boundary discussions with your partner ahead of time, very important. So yeah, just have your safety in mind. Be safe out there. Make sure that you are serious about your safety. If you are playing with anybody that doesn't take that seriously or thinks that you're being overly cautious or thinks that you don't trust them because you want a safety call, those are all red flags. And so I wanted to ask you, though again, you've had mostly good experiences, what would you consider this isn't going well? On I'm going to go ahead and pause type. there because my conversation with Katja went on for another hour and there's a lot of good stuff in the second part of our conversation that I think you will be interested in. But one hour is probably enough for any individual podcast. We had a lot of fun making this, and I think we'll do some more interviews, both with Katja and some of my other models. If you have any questions about us or our relationship, or for Katja specifically, send those to us or leave them in the comments. And until next week, stay safe out there. Thanks. Thanks.